Hello, welcome, Bishop Dana. How are you tonight? I am well. How are you? I'm very, very excited. Yeah, this is great. Very great. Padre Paul, are you on the line? And Bishop Robert Bearden. I'm on the line. I think Padre needs to unmute. Anyway, yes. Thank you, Bobby. Namaste. Glad you could make it, Padre. Well, first of all, welcome everybody to uh, the third part of our series of Fix Your Eyes. I'm so grateful that all of you could join us tonight and that you will hopefully deepen your commitment into the divine and feel that connection, even though we're dealing with times that are hard and changes that uh, we can't predict. So before I get into it, I would like to start by asking Reverend Bobby to open with a prayer. Let's set the space first. Thank you. Precious creator, dearest friend, holy redeemer, the one true light, Thank you for being an example of what is possible in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you for showing us community that can thrive in an everlasting way. There are so many opportunities being given to us these days. Do not let us miss out on them. Stay with us at our side. Guide us with your extended vision and view. Let us be examples of the greatest creation Together we make an everlasting promise to heal and restore, to be friend, to be kind, to be love. As only it can happen through your grace, your intervention, and your peace. In your name, in your holy name, amen. Thank you, Bobby. I'm always amazed at the energy, I mean, when we gather together, it's so obvious because of the, the the enclosed space and all this there, the power. What I can tell you, my home has been filled being ready for this. And I just really felt it drop in with your prayer, Bobby. Thank you. So first of all, again, thank you for being here today. And I'm going to probably both hopefully entertain you, awaken you, and probably irritate you today a little bit. <laughs> Not on purpose. Or I thought of myself and the guidance I received, but I want to stay true to what Holy Spirit was asking me to say and do today. So this, again, what Padre does and how I'm always amazed at how he just brings in these topics and these subjects to expand upon that have so much to do with what we're all didn't even realize we have to face or putting it into terms that we didn't realize we're ready to uncover. So when he first gave me my topic over and exposed, I was like, <laughs> like a photograph or what? <laughs> and, and Padre has that wonderful laugh because he knows, I don't know either. It's what Holy <laughs> told me. And I'm, I know you can do it. He gave me some good examples, which is really helpful. But it's a follow-up. So we're dealing with, as we were in sheltering in place, and now we're re-entering, and we're under, understanding how to re-enter and fixing our eyes about where do we want to be now ourselves in the world in connection with the divine. Padre's talk was focused on the power of decree and making our reality now and how we can bring that to this world and start making change. And Bishop Bobby last week was focusing on 2020 vision. Like 
being able to see God in everything, in the good, in the bad, and not just seeing the surface of something, but actually feeling God in a flower or a picture, or a rose or a poem or a song. And both of these were really, really powerful. So today I'm going to talk in on why do we fear having our eye on the light of God and instead focus on the problem and get blinded by all the data that's uncomfortable. So with that, I'm going to give you a bunch of slides, of course, and try to make it attainable at the same time. So the scripture for today was Acts 28, which is a, as a background, these, these are all stories of Paul's life. And Paul would go around to different groups to share his vision, his awakening, and his message. Oftentimes, as he met different Jewish groups, synagogues, etc., they felt that he was speaking something that wasn't true to their past practices. So this is one of the statements of what was happening as he had one of these experiences. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and in return I would heal them. But remember, that's not Paul speaking to them. That's Holy Spirit speaking to them. It could be very easily misconstrued that Paul was basically saying, hey, I'm above you. And he, he was basically trying to point out in all cultures and all times, people get stuck. Now, while this was to a group of people, I'd like to introduce you to the Gospel of Thomas again, which are speak, sayings of Jesus. And, and these are directly to his disciples, not to a new group of people or anything like that. But he basically was saying something very similar. It's saying number 42. And his disciples said to him, Who are you to say this to us? And Jesus said unto them, From what I say to you, do you not know who I am? But you have become like the Jews. They love the tree and hate the fruit. And they love the fruit and hate the tree. Now, okay, was he being racist? He's a Jew. No, he was trying to say, you have started to get stuck in what everybody does. And what everybody does is they want one thing and exclude the other. And then they want the other and exclude the first. And in that state, we live in opposition. We live in polarity. And we're constantly being stuck. So what I'm going to focus on tonight is how we get stuck. How when we're dealing with the idea of being overexposed, what we're actually doing is through the course of trying to make a series of, I guess I'd say it differently. We're off right now, all of us are finding ourselves in a state of trying to take in a series of life affecting, overwhelming outer events that we don't have control over. And what happens is we reach a point of becoming overwhelmed. When that happens, we close our hearts and minds. And then we start going into a series of habitual coping patterns 
limiting our connection to God. Now, I don't need to harp on this really hard, but I would like to give you a little rundown of many of these things that you have been dealing with lately. So let's start with climate change. That was just last year, where we've gotten huge arguments about is it true or is it not? And yet there's plenty of data that shows that 90% of all the climate scientists agree. We have some problems here. There's some problems in temperature extreme, temperature increasing, extreme weather is increasing, droughts, snow and ice are vanishing, permafrost is melting, the sea level is rising, and ecosystems are changing. And when we're doing that, we're seeing if there's going to be a change in warming effect, it's going to have an effect upon the weather, upon water availability, upon the amount of people that will be exposed or have to deal with this, sea level rise, etc. Nothing to not to get panicked about, to just understand that it's facts. And we have seen this where we've had even a young child wake us up to the fact that things are happening here and we keep putting the priority on money instead of the overall safety of all the planet. And we've certainly experienced it in the sense of fires, et cetera, and, and other uh, natural events that we've had across the country. And besides this environmental, oh gosh, we've got all the political here in our own country. Well, we have early on the Mueller report and the idea of, and the real focus of this, forget anything about a president or anybody else, the idea of another government interfering with our presidential election to influence who gets voted for. I don't care who it's for, but the idea that my vote isn't counting, but somebody over there on some computer is doing it, where in the result, end result, it was very clear. Forget the rest of the information, but the Russian government interfered the presidential election with no doubts and is still doing that and, and we don't know what to do about that and yet then we move forward and we find through a series of actions to different government actions an impeachment process happened where we brought forward a series of witnesses that we haven't seen for over a couple decades in which under oath tried to explain what they felt was a truism or not and which led to an impeachment which again leads huge since you're an American, what does that mean to me? Now we have coronavirus, and coronavirus has really offended us in so many different ways with the idea that from the big businesses down to the small person just down the street who has to close and can't stay closed, in fact, actually has to sell. Such that unemployment claims are, are through the roof, things that we can't even begin to comprehend because none of us are old enough to even remember the Great Depression. And the amount of deaths, they keep climbing, that scares us, makes us feel afraid, such that we are so overly worried about what it would be like, whoops, with our social distancing. How are we going to deal with that? Well, that makes us pretty scared about things. We're not quite sure what we want to do from there. So oftentimes what we end up doing is being stuck and find somewhere to actually start to fight. So trying to get past that, there's been some activism trying to make us wake up and say, well, let's not just do nothing, let's some, take some action. And I'll use the example again of something that everybody misconstrued. And that was the original kneeling of a football player out here in San Francisco, Colin Kaepernick, that everybody assumed right away was against the flag or against the country. And nobody, I bet none of you still really know that what this is about, was about an individual named Mario Woods. Mario Woods was a San Francisco young man, not necessarily the greatest guy, but a child, a brother, and he was in trouble. 
and deserve to be probably brought in for some kind of interrogation. He, he might have stabbed somebody. But there was a series of, I guess, eight officers who shot 22 bullets in less than three seconds and killed him, and he hadn't approached any of them. And Colin wasn't saying, hey, I believe in this man's rights, or he's saying he didn't have a gun. He had a knife. He wasn't holding it up to anybody. He was on drugs, and they were just trying to get him contained. There are many different ways to contain somebody. And he said, this happens all the time. And if this would have happened to me, what would you have done? In this case, it goes under the cup, under the rug, so to speak. In the end, none of the officers were charged, but the, the city settled for $400 million or something like that with the mother for wrongful death. Okay, well, that's, that's something we don't really know about. But, but now, with the recent events, we understand that it's basically, you know, the Minneapolis police use force against black people at seven times the rate of whites. Well, why would that be? Are they more violent or something? At least my experience in working with people of color, which I don't like to use that word because we are all the same, but they don't seem any different than me. And we have had to deal with something as incredibly insane as Breonna Taylor here. An EMT sleeping with her boyfriend where police had a no-knock search, busted in, and the guy was defending his house, said, who's there? They hadn't identified himself. He shot with the gun that he owned legally, and they killed her. And sadly enough, everybody knows this face of George Floyd. And more unfortunately, we, we, all, we don't recognize this face. We only recognize this situation. Which for eight minutes, somebody was standing on him until they couldn't breathe, and he was trying to communicate that. And that led to a whole series of violent protests, unfortunately. These are uncalled for. They don't make any change. They're harmful. And we would think it would stop things, but it, it made a lot of people decide to do nonviolent change. Let's just speak up about what we do want here. But, and it isn't, it isn't about the killing of people, it's about what's happening to us. We go past that, here we have the 75-year-old, and I being in the nonviolent peace resistance movement way back in the 80s, I know a lot of guys just like this guy. Long, probably eats granola every morning, and he was out there and trying to communicate with the police as they were moving forward, and they shoved him. He's 75 years old. He doesn't have balance. They didn't try to catch him. He, he still he has a fractured skull. He can, still can't get up and walk. And, of course, the unfortunate event for Amon Aubrey. Amon Aubrey was a father who, after a drink and a half, decided to go to Wendy's to get some hamburgers. Should he have been driving? I guess he was 0.1 over the legal limit. No, but he didn't. He was in the parking lot. His, his car was there. His wife dropped, his white girlfriend dropped him off there. And he fell asleep in the drive-thru line. The police came and had a lengthy, it's almost an hour-long video you can watch, of nothing but cooperation between him and the officers, except the officers were determined to come up with an outcome. He, he volunteered to give up his keys, lock the car, and walk to his sister's house to sleep it off. And this is a solution any local law enforcement person might actually give you that benefit of the doubt saying, hey, I don't need to make more trouble, ends up out of nowhere. It was really quick. They were handcuffing. He reacted because his daughter's birthday is the next day. I wouldn't want to be in jail on my daughter's birthday. He started running, wrestled, fought, things he shouldn't have done. Not right. He shot him twice in the back. That isn't okay in our world. Again, would that happen to my brother or sister or any of you? 
I'd be beside myself. I'd be so distressed. I wouldn't get violent. But I would try to do something about it. I would try to make a stand. So why am I telling you about this? Because it has a history, a history we're not aware of. When I was in ninth grade, seventh grade, seventh grade, yeah, the bookmobile came by my junior high and you're allowed to buy a book. I had enough money to go out and buy, you know, party boys or peanuts. I bought this book, but just like this. I have no idea what drove me to buy that book at first. It's like a 300 page documentary of how Hitler came to power. Not about what happened afterward, we know that. But what happened to make that happen? I read that every single day. So I went to college and I began to become really afraid. Not afraid scared wise, but afraid that I was seeing the same things happening around me that happened back then. What happened back then? Well, it wasn't just one, there was a lot. I could add like five more pictures here, but these are two pictures of tyrants, totalitarians, people that didn't believe you had a right. Now, what's, they, they were responsible for the, the deaths of millions of, of beings who are probably now incarnated again, trying to figure it out again, doing marches again. And what that led to was another group of people underneath these people that were the instigators of how it worked. And one of the most scary guys was Joseph Goebbels. He was in charge of propaganda. He was in charge of speaking words. And he had, a philo- he had many philosophies. And one is a lie told once remains a lie. But you tell it a thousand times, it becomes the truth. So the more you take something that isn't true and say it, it starts to become a fact in other people's minds. And that's how they started to pursue eugenics and all sorts of ideas about other cultures being less than, etc. At some point, people look the other way as your neighbor was drug away. That led to a whole culture a whole culture of children indoctrinated with this must be the way to be and live. And we know how that ended up with a lot of other children dying. But some things you didn't know, because we overfocus sometimes on facts again and get overwhelmed. Did you know that out of the 11 million people that died, 6 million were Jewish, and the other victims priests, gypsies, people with mental and physical disabilities, people that had communists on their card. It isn't some kind of a genetic issue. Trade unionists, Jehovah's Witnesses, anarchists, particularly most Poles and Slavic peoples and resistance fighters. That's a lot of people that weren't Jewish. And there's a picture of a whole bunch of priests right before they were killed in Poland. Fortunately, there were other priests that supported him. But being religious did not stop. Being spiritual did not stop things from happening. And why I'm bringing this up is because today, a leader, like, like we're trying to be leaders here at CLM, you have to be with integrity. And that integrity is reflective upon the state of your business or company. Thus, it's so important to be in truth. And I would be the first one to say, I do not know of a president that hasn't lied to get what they want. Through all the presidents of my lifetime, I've seen the lies that they've said, and I've been upset with them whether I liked them or I didn't. Because to me as a leader, that type of lie to justify death or murder is not okay. And 
we're reaching a culmination because I'm not going to blame it on a person. And I'm going to say this particular president, as a result of going through, has made 19,127 false and misleading statements in the time he's been in office. Now, and many of those things were repeated. So that doesn't mean they're all separate ones. It means he really doesn't know how to stop tweeting and he says the same thing 300 times. Well, that's 300 times of one thing. But still, what happens, that starts to be a subject. People start to debate. And what are they debated in? We debated in areas where we are unsure. Immigration, the Russia probe, even coronavirus. There's so many different places where things that he or his representatives, my government has said that has led to confusion and led to fear. And I know we're getting to that place where you're finally just going to say, Wait, please stop, David. Come on, man. I came here to talk about God. I want to have something nice. And you're going to start, uh, I just, you know, I need a drink. I need to go out for some repair here. Now, I'm joking a bit, but this is what's true and happens. And what people do when they have coping issues that are unhealthy, they'll start binging on smoking, drinking, and drugs. What a lot of people are doing right now in their social distancing and coming out, I'm going to go straight to a bar. There was a story just this morning about 16 friends that went to a birthday party at a bar. All 16 have tested positive for corona. None of them are seriously ill. But it was more like a wake-up call, like, well, we thought it wasn't around us. Binging, not just on junk or comfort food, but binging on whatever habit that is uncomfortable for you, maybe not helpful. Washing your hands over and over again when you haven't even gone outside. Zoning out. I've never watched so much Netflix in my entire life. It's the last month and a half. I can tell you all the grade B movies and the grade C movies. I can even tell you Korean movies to watch. Procrastinating, taking your time. I mean, as we said, how many, how many more boxes? Padre was bringing up how he's gone through his boxes. Have you gone through some boxes in your house? And what we'll do a lot of, taking it out on others. I've already seen that in traffic. I see it with people pointing fingers all the time. And then avoidant behavior, sleeping a lot more. All sorts of things that make us feel really stuck. I'd prefer not to go that direction. I'd prefer us to have another possibility. And what will happen is when you shut down your heart or live life on the defensive, there's absolutely no way of healing or light or love can, that can get in. And that leads to doubt. As Buddha said, there's nothing more dreadful than the habit of doubt. Doubt separates us from each other, separates us from the environment, separates us from God. It's a poison that disintegrates friendships, breaks up pleasant relations. It's a thorn that irritates and hurts. It's a sword that kills. Well, how do we get there? First of all, you know, we know that after I just went through all that, you can feel your mind starting to go off again, thinking things. What do I think about that? What do I think? And then we deal with, you have a lot of energy in your head. And I've, I've talked about it before. If there's too many minds, you can't make any rightful understanding, get perspective, and make a choice. So you have to stop the self-talk thinking. I'm right, they're wrong, they're wrong, I'm right, this isn't so, I'm so scared, I wonder what I'll do. Is the fire coming again? You first have to just be here present. The mind has to stop. And then again, as I've talked about in some of my talks, I need to make you aware of where are you coming from. I think it's been quoted already, 98.9% .9 of families in the United States come from a dysfunctional family. Dysfunctional family is just a family. 
let's not call it dysfunctional in that way, except that there are characteristics. Now, in this diagram, they're, they're describing a family that has different set uh, parental roles and children roles. They can switch vice versa. It doesn't always have to be the father or the mother, but usually there's one person that's a dominant leader. That could be very positive, but a lot of times that person is based on some kind of dependency, not chemical, but old, some type of dependency. My father didn't drink alcohol at all, and yet he was verbally abusive, physically abusive, to the point of actually threatening my life several times. My mom was the enabler, basically trying to protect me by not protecting me. <laughs> she basically disappeared most of the time. She was passive. Now, on the surface, I'm a, I had a good life. I had a really good life. I, w I didn't have the life of Mario. I didn't have the life of even George. George has a good, was a good man. But it was obvious in terms of, do you think what would have happened for me would have happened, for him would have happened for me if I was sitting across from a 7-Eleven? And I look disheveled. I haven't shaved because I've been inside for two weeks. Well, what will happen is in the systems that we grew up in, we do not realize that they have affected us. This is adult child and alcoholics. And nobody has to have, actually have an alcoholic father and mother. It just means that they believe in the same things that happened before them. There's no independent thinking. There's a, no new traditions. Everything's set in stone. It's very rigid values. And that can happen from a very religious point of view, an economic point of view, an educational point of view. It was very clear I was going to college. There's no other options. It was very clear that I should be something important, a doctor or a teacher or something. I end up taking the role of family hero. Probably also the mascot. I kind of combined those two together. And my sister was more the scapegoat and lost child. She disappeared a lot. So you, you, you might only be your only child, but literally you can have some of these many qualities. And when you have these qualities, what ends up happening is you get separated. And when you get separated, there's a way in which you experience a type of distancing. So what will happen is your true nature, yourself gets buried. That starlight that you are can be surrounded with this false self that's composed of a harsh critic, the procrastinator, the rager, the terrified child, the codependent people pleaser, and the shame child. I mean, these are all different qualities. Everybody has different ways of eluding it or showing it. Worst case scenario is you buy into it stronger and you become a narcissist. Again, being a narcissist means you have no problem lying to another person without a second thought. In fact, our lies become our truths. And what happens is we start believing our lies. So are you a narcissist? Are you self-centered? Do you have a sense of entitlement or superiority, a lack of empathy, manipulative or controlling, strong need for admiration, difficulty taking feedback, easily wounded? I doubt it if you're on this call. It's very hard for a narcissist to want to actually hear information that helps them. But we are egoic. We do have ways that we get stuck. And my favorite teacher of all time has something to say about that. Close your mouth, open your ears, you must, then hear what your true heart is seeking you will. I wish I could imitate him better. Close your mouth. I can't. I can't. I tried, but it just doesn't come off right. With that, how would we do that? Well, first of all, the thing you need to understand, there is a difference between conforming and rebelling. In conformance, we are compliant, we identify, we internalize, we ritualize. That's becoming, I'm a Methodist. I'm a Michigander. I'm a gay man. I'm a lesbian woman. I am a person of color. 
Conformity means you agree to a set set of principles, whether they're helpful or not. The rebel on the other side is, I don't want to play that. I don't want to, I don't like what my parents taught me. I want to be something different. So you're a rule breaker, you're independent. It could be done with a bit of self-righteousness, even rebelliousness. And this swings like a pendulum back and forth, and this is a going. And what I learned when I was doing my peace movement work, this doesn't work. There's no possibility. Rebellion does not change things. And conformity does not allow for change to happen. So what we have to do is we have to transcend the negative behaviors, the negative choices, the negative concepts. And with that, you have to raise your awareness about what is. Like what is going on around me and what do I believe in? Resolve the ambivalence of not wanting to be involved, not wanting to understand, not wanting to know, not wanting to choose. Identify the aligned changes that I need to make within myself and therefore in the world. Implement transformation, again, in a nonviolent, peaceful way, in a, connect, a divine connected way. And maintain that awareness with new tools and welcome the next level of confront, like the next series of events that are going to happen in the world because it's not going away. So I would like to be present for it. I'd like to help others during it. On a more personal level, though, there's stages in which there's pre-contemplation where you're actually raising your awareness. That, then there's contemplation, which you're resolving the ambivalence. And I'm going to say these are with God. Pre-contemplation is like what we just did before the talk. There's a whole series of uh, slides to get you into pre-contemplation. Raising your awareness to what are we here for? Oh, yeah, God, worship. And in contemplation is, oh, I don't know what I think about this, but I feel God in the room, even though we're talking about it. Determination, I'd like to know what is blocking me. What's the appropriate change? More prayer? More decree? Take action on it. Should I pray longer? Should I pray more? And my maintenance, what am I committing to every day? And if I fall, how do I change that? How do I get back out of it if I fall? Well, again, you probably won't be able to do that unless you understand a little bit more again about the inner child versus the intellect. We often find that most of our behaviors are reactions. And those types of reactions are either emotional or intellectual, and they tend to swing back and forth and fight with each other. That's the work that many of the people at FST has done in the process work, is about defining the difference between not just the inner child and the intellect, but the authentic self, which is the whole purpose of who we are. The inner child is going to be, in its worst case, in fear, or sadness, or anger, or a false joy, a type of everything's okay. The intellect is dealing with a type of shaming of the child, judgment of the child, comparison between me and other people, and false confidence. I know what I'm talking about. This all happens because of conditioning and programming we've had through our families and through society, associating with others with like concepts, memorizing patterns that we don't even understand what they mean, but we'll say it over and over again. I pledge allegiance to this. No, whatever it is, do you know what you're pledging to? And conceptualizing, which means making things good and making things bad. So the authentic self, again, is self-awareness and acceptance. Self-reflection and allowance, internally first, before I can do it externally. Self-regulation, being in the present moment regardless of what's happening. Letting go of the self by listening to God. And that certainty and knowing that God is guiding my path now. And thus, I'm trying to say, for most of the people that I know that have done the process, where a lot of people just want to get a better healed child, and a more neutral intellect. I think spiritual growth is the only real growth. Being the authentic self is the only thing you can truly be. And to do that, there's been 
all sorts of documentation about how to be in realized states. All the way down from being stuck in the world up to being a complete I am this awareness of the entire existence of all things, which I call the quantum field. And we need some role models to be able to do that. Moses was awesome. A prince who gives it up and decides to lead a whole people of oppressed people through a desert for 40 years. That's a big undertaking. I don't think I can do that. I can barely handle these talks. Buddha, who not only created schools across the continent of Asia, he literally went and taught kings. And that's a pretty dangerous thing. Can you imagine the three of us going and confronting any president, the last five, telling them where they are missing the boat? Where is their true inner faith? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't judge anybody about this, but eventually in the healing, the false self has to fall away. It's just another individual. Nobody is a president. Nobody is above anybody else. And everybody is naked in front of God. More of my favorite, Jesus, as a child, spoke to the teachers and wasn't creating a problem yet. But as he grew up, he realized some of the things they were saying were a little bit off. What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Wow, that's a mouthful. I'll have to say that someday when I'm marching. And of course, they didn't really listen. They weren't interested. And then there's another one where he entered the synagogue. So he went on their turf. There's a man there with a withered hand. And as the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath, which was against the law, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were all silent on the Pharisees. They weren't going to try and get into a dialogue. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees, of course, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodian against him and how to destroy him. And when we see a picture like this, we don't understand all the politics involved. We don't understand that he was in the middle of a political movement, but he wasn't getting political. He was stating truth. Are you aware of the time when Jesus healed the same-sex partner? A lot of you probably aren't familiar with this. So it goes back to Matthew 8, 5 through 13, with a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and begs to heal his paeus, a word sometimes translated as servant. He agrees to come to the centurion's home, but paeus does not mean servant. It means lover. And it always meant the idea of the younger lover or the junior partner in a same-sex marriage. Jesus didn't hesitate. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asked for help. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion said, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. What reason? Maybe he's been shamed for having same-sex marriage. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus said this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
for the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping, gnashing, and teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And the servant was healed at that very hour. So that's long distance healing. No decision about race, gender preference, gender selection, political affiliation. You believe in God, it will happen. Of course, more modern cases, Gandhi was very involved not only in India, he went to England where he went to the cotton mills because cotton was, going, was sent from India to England where they milled it and then turned it into fiber, into garment. And so they were always oppressed. He went and stood by them. He marched with them so that they would get more pay, that they would have more rights. He, didn't just, he wasn't just fighting for Indian rights, he was fighting for humanity rights. Mother Teresa, one of the most blessed people on the planet, poverty is not made by God. It's created by you and me. She's not blaming anybody. But when we don't share what we have, and do you want to do anything about that? I was always inspired a little bit by Martin Luther King. His mobilization in the civil rights movement had just 0.1% of the U.S. population, and it made the biggest change in the world we've seen in our lifetime. Oscar Romero, a bishop in El Salvador that got me involved a bit in the, in the peace movement. A church that doesn't provoke any crises, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of the society in which is being proclaimed. What gospel is that? He eventually was assassinated while he was doing communion, giving communion, because he was trying to help the poor and oppressed in his country who were always being tortured. It wasn't just a simple, oh, it's, it makes some sense, just like we're dealing with our current events. It doesn't make sense to us because we're not living in that world. So we just read the news and get unconscious about it. Tin Han, who was involved in the Vietnam War, nonviolently, walked with Martin Luther King, talked with him a bit. But he's focused more, on, again, on what's needed. The healing oneself is healing the world because it has to heal inside before you go outside. And my love for the Dalai Lama, and Desmond Tutu, people that were involved in their country's huge changes. Dalai Lama lost his country, and yet they never proclaimed violence. Always involved in multiple world issues. Always focused on healing and divine presence. So, if we create most of our suffering, it should be logical we also have the ability to create more joy. When it comes to personal happiness, there's a lot that we as individuals can do. And that starts with listening. Chinese philosopher Chao Tzu stated that the true empathy requires listening with the whole being. The hearing that is only in the ears is one thing. The hearing of the understanding is another. But the hearing of the spirit is not limited to any one faculty, to the ear, to the mind. Hence, it demands the emptiness of all the faculties. When the faculties are empty, then the whole being listens. There is then a direct grasp of what is right there before you that can never be heard with the ear understood with the mind. Most of us prevailed in the prevailing form of listening in our society. Much of the time, we don't really listen. We listen not to connect deeply with the experience of another, but to reply. Rather than listen deeply, we are thinking what we're going to say next. Although our ears and eyes and finer sensibilities are operational as we listen, much of our attention is locked into what is running through our discursive minds. It's a matter of habit. We automatically analyze, compare, judge, and relate it to an associated personal experience, advice, counsel, or otherwise react. 
without a deep awareness of what's really going on, either inside ourselves or in the other person. As a result, whole realms of emotional and intuitive energies remain beneath the level of our awareness. Rather than really connect, we often end up bouncing off one another. It doesn't have to be this way. We can actually learn an entirely different way of listening to another person and to ourselves. We can go deeper. We can empathize. We may listen with our hearts. Now, the reason I'm asking, actually just burying you with this is because I want you to understand there's no separation between God and all the events that happen around us. Some of us are called to do more work exteriorly. I did that in the past, and I was told by my guys not to do that anymore in that gross way, but to pray for that all the time. So I'm always praying for the world, for the environment. My day job is I do that. I'm trying to create balance in businesses by doing the landscaping that creates harmony. But I can't teach about God there. FSD, I try to teach spiritual freedom and how to understand the nature of your true self. But I ask people, how are you going to do this in your community? How are you going to do it with your family? How are you going to do it at your job? This isn't a, a group to come join. And my same feeling is about celebrating life, and I could be wrong. It's my personal view. We're here to help healing happen, miraculous healing, so that then you can go out and bring miraculous healing to your family, to your community to the politics that exist, to more better race relations, to gender acceptance, all sorts of things that are missing on our planet that all the great masters didn't have these problems with. How can we deepen not only our word with God, but our word with God in our life, in our actions, in our voting, in our participation? Be a big brother, be a big sister. It doesn't mean go just march for this or that. It means we're... Where are you drawn to do service? Because that's what all the disciples were asked to do. It wasn't just going out and ministering in the sense of preaching or bringing people into the flock. It giving without, you know, there was the woman on the, at the well. She didn't just, her whole group didn't suddenly decide to follow Jesus. He reached out and helped somebody. So I know that's a lot of information. It went a long time. But Bobby, can I bring you in now? Yes. What issue in society has confused you in the past? Were you scared, sad, angry, or overwhelmed? <laughs> well, I've, I've had a lot of those. Oh. Just because that's how my prayer life goes, right? It, it kind of has to come upon me and then get my attention and get, get a process going. So, I mean, any number of things. But I, I would say, I, I think the one that really affected me was the AIDS epidemic. Uh-huh. Because I was young, I was young, and I was just out of nursing school, and I became a nurse at the time of an epidemic where there were a lot of unknowns, and there was a lot of fear, just like we're living today. And young people were dying, and it was marginalized people. It was easy to, to be afraid of them, or to scapegoat, or to try to push it away, because it was, it was what it was. It was political. It was all the things that you named. And yet at the same time, amazing things came out of that. A lot of compassion, a lot of courage. One of the first people that I ever had to do post-mortem care on was 23 years old and I was 25. So I had to grow up really fast as a professional and also as a human because this was what was happening. And, and it really kind of opened my eyes to how goodness can come out of something that's so frightening and that 
something can be healed at a deeper level than just a physical healing. I mean, there was a lot of emotional healing that happened. There were a lot of groups that stood up. Lesbians stood up to save gay men. Mm-hmm. And at that, before that point, there, they were separate societies. They were very separate in Michigan, too. And that happened. I realized all of a sudden people realized they had a mission and life together. Yeah. And then parents who were who raised their their children and their families with a certain tradition had to go into themselves and release tradition in order to become a true parent and get involved in marches, get involved in politics, get involved in hospital policy, be at their child's bedside when they were ill or dying and and at great risk to them to their heart, to their soul, to their belief system, but they did it. So I just saw so many wonderful things. There was a point, I was a Buddhist at the time, and there was a point where I was losing a friend a month. And I knew as soon as the call came in that if I didn't get to that, to that bedside in that, within a day, I would not see that person again. So I stopped resisting and I started acting, even though it wasn't convenient, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. I would just go and, and say goodbye. I mean, they might have already been in a coma or they might have already been in the in a way that they wouldn't recognize that I was there. But I still had for myself, I had to go. And then one one year at New Year's in Buddhism, there's a big tradition about the new year. You always bring in the new year and spend a few days doing it. You clean and you make offerings. You do all these different things. And I was just so flat. I was my heart was so heavy and I was so numb that I realized the only thing I could do was have a massive memorial service Mm. for every person who had perished, for every person who was in the throes of chaos or, or death. And I just sat down and I prayed 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 until I was light, until I was liberated by the death. So instead of being taken out by it, I was actually released into a higher reality. So I would say that was a time of, of, confusion, but also clarity, really amazing clarity. You spoke something there I remember happening to me too. That was that moment of realizing I was being ambivalent. And then I had to make a choice and decide not to be ambivalent. Like when you said you realized you needed to start going to see these people and you hadn't been doing that. What was the underlying concept there that you were not realizing you were having? Shame, regret, fear. It was all, the, all those shadow things that I, it was more comfortable to have all that than it was to go to somebody's bedside who was dying. Mm-hmm. And I had, to, I had to fight through all those, those feelings, exhaustion, overwhelm, just having to take a stand, right. literally having to take a stand and say, it doesn't matter, whatever, whatever happens, I have to go, or I have to pray, or I have to love even though it's not convenient, it's not pretty, it might even be contagious. Because nobody knew anything. We right. didn't know anything. Right. We just knew that. And then I'd go to work and I'd get needle sticks and I would come in contact mm-hmm. with all kinds of things where I was potentially being exposed. And, and then having to walk through that process. But walking through it and not ne- never being alone, the system was actually there to support my well-being. And we were all in it together. It was just like, the only way we got through it was we didn't leave each other, no matter how scary or weird or stressful it was. We just didn't abandon each other. How do you use God now, Bobby? 
how, how do you use God to be active now? Because I can see back then, your Buddhism has always been a form of activism. That's where Thich Han comes from, the Dalai Lama. So it's very, even Gandhi's Hinduism, to see the Christian model and, and, and the true strength of God, how has that come into play for you? Well, I've come a long way since then. I don't have that kind of fear that I used to have. Thank God I've had a lot of help with that. And a lot of that help has come through celebrating life and remembering my first love, Jesus, and understanding that a lot of what I used to avoid was only because I was in non-acceptance of myself. So now I would say that the the way that I use the divine is I divulge, I have confession, I divulge everything, I, I put everything in God's hands. And I say, I don't want to do this. I don't know what to do. What do I do? I'm confused. I'm whatever. And you you tell me. And if I'm really, really in the middle of something, I just, it doesn't matter what time, morning, noon, or night, I say, you've got to fix this. <laughs> I I literally let the divine take, take charge because I have learned that leaning on my own devices doesn't work. It only gets me in trouble. And it doesn't bring a lofty outcome for others either. I've been a rescuer. Thank God I met Carolyn Mace when I was young, and she told me if I could hang on, I would move from being a rescuer to a healer by the time I was 40. She said, you have to hang on. You just have to hang on because your destiny is to be a a healer. But you've learned how to be a rescuer. You had to in order to survive, but now those days are over, and I'm well past 40. (laughs) So, And I have witnessed in you that empathetic listening. I mean, you're one of the best listeners I know. Bobby, in the sense of like, you see so many different levels of what's happening while somebody's speaking, where you can heal from the body, from the chemistry, from the emotions, from the psychology, and from the spiritual miasms or possessions or whatever, you you just seem to be able to really see another being. And I really admire that about you. Thank you. Thank you. Padre Paul. I don't, you come from a different society, a different part of the world. Has there been any issue in society that has confused you in the past? Were you scared, angry, or overwhelmed? Did you experience a separation with God with it? How'd you cope with it? I, sorry about that. Because your world was way different than my world. But of these conversations together, and Padre's like, what? <laughs> For sure. It's just like, who are you? From the Midwest, it's like these crazy Californians. And then now I'm drawn into the the whole bunch. And it's like, wow. (laughs) Anyway, but it it was definitely a shift. And it was only because you engaged me or coerced me into coming that I couldn't say no. But it, it forced my own reality of, because at that time I was, of course, grieving the loss of my friend Ron Roth and ministry and not knowing, even though I'm leading, that I'm leading blindly because I really don't feel like I'm called to do this, even though I feel it's supposed to be mine, but I have not the tools. And so what you and FSD did was give me the tools in order to break it all down so I could actually function at the role that I'm playing right now, or playing or becoming right now, the spiritual leader. And But it that was a a night and day experience for me. Bobby's experience with the AIDS academic, or academic was the, I remember Ron Roth being invited to Louise Hayes. She used what is called Hay House, where once a week they would come and they would just pray for one another, especially with the AIDS people. 
And Ron was invited to go. And of course, I was his driver. So I got to come. And I remember going to the Hay House event. And but it was in a different location. And it was kind of hard to find. And so of course, I'm the driver, but I'm also the those go find where it's at. So I did that. And we thought it was just one room and it wasn't. And Ron says, well, there's no cars here. So let's go home. And I go, we can't do that. We got to find it. So eventually, we found where it was. And I was a little scout, so I went in, and I was like, to my amazement, there was easily maybe 800 men there, and it's like, wow. So I come back to the car and says, Ron, they're here. There's, there's so many. And he goes, well, I don't want to go in. I go, what? And I go, you're invited to come. And he goes, I, he, he, he was fearful. Number one, he was a Catholic priest, and it's like, is he going to lose his credentials if he enters into this place? Because at that time, it really wasn't accepted within the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So he had to break his own fear. And little mini Padre Paul <laughs> kind of pushed him out of the car and says, we're going. I'm going here. You can sit in the car because I refuse not to go in. And eventually he gave, gave up his fear and went in and met Louise Hay. And of course, not knowing what was going to actually happen during this time. But it was everybody just sharing their heart, their pain, their sorrow. And at one point during this called Hay House, they said, well, pair up one-on-one and you pray for one another. And it's like, what? Because <laughs> I've never, I, in my world, especially in the Midwest, I never met a person who had AIDS. And so it still had this stigma of death or could we catch it like the coronavirus? There was this major fear that went on. And I remember the person that I was praying for their protocol was, well, I sit in a lotus position and that person puts their head on my lap. And it's like, oh my God, I'm going to touch them because I didn't know what happened. Was I fearful? It was all in my brain. But what kicked in was my heart. And it's like, I know how to pray. I would love to pray for this person. I just had to get away from myself and what I thought and allow Christ's love to come. And it was a shattering experience for me of really entering into a whole new world of being compassionate, regardless of what my fear was. And Ron did the same thing, of course. And afterwards, Louise says, she introduced Ron to these 800 men. And it says, well, if you want to talk to him, we got deluge with people. Just, Just says, thank you for coming and representing the church, which they felt kicked them out. So it, it, it was really an amazing event. That's, that's wonderful, Padre, because that, that really speaks to a change. When you realize that man was laying his head, head, head in your lap and you decided to go against your fear, what concept, you might have already spoken it, but what concept did you just blow right out of your space to be able to do that? Yeah, well, what would Christ do? I know the principle. Now I have to actually apply it. So you, I like I said, I went outside of myself and just allowed Christ's love to heal because love actually heals. And through your many visuals that you put up there tonight about being overexposed, I could feel my brain just going, oh my God, it's too much for me. And it's in that same thing about fear that it overwhelms me. But until I get into my heart, that's where the miracle happens. Correct. So the more we do that, the more life itself can be a joy actually and it's not about me it's not about you 
It's about what the light in us wants to come forth. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that many people can't get to the core of the issue unless they meet somebody individually. I remember my thing where it was uh, meeting, having a gun stuck to my head when I was doing a nonviolent training. If I were to protect somebody by putting myself in between them and somebody that was trying to kill them, and the gun was put on my head, like, let go of them. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I realized, am I going to live for this? And then I said, I'm not afraid to die. This person, it, this is wrong. And I, and I wouldn't let go. I softened. And that made the guy step back. This was a, a mock-up. It wasn't a real thing. But I realized that changed. And I thought I was on top of the world with that. But then when one of my healers, a partner of mine, was working with the AIDS epidemic, specifically going house to house, and she kept asking me to come to help do healings. And the one gentleman had never met me, and he'd been pushed away by his family, and he was hurting. He was so angry and so hurt and so sad. And I walked in, and he's like, yeah, you think you're somebody. And he he just reached out and tested me right away, and he says, you thirsty? And I said, yeah. He goes, you want to drink out of my glass? (laughs) It's you? Or I was like, I know all the truth about HIV. I'd done all my research. I'd gotten all the background information. I knew it wasn't contagious in that way, but still the doubts there from all the the news and the fears and the concepts people keep passing around. And I realized, again, this concept that something else could hurt me when God wants me to be here for this person. I said, absolutely not. I said, thank you. And I drained the glass. And I looked at him and said, thanks. I was really thirsty. And he looked at me like, oh. And that was a healing, not for just him, but for me. So my brothers, what's it's pretty obvious probably, but what spiritual leader inspires you currently? I'm very drawn to Sri Bhagwan and to his teachings. And partly because he really focuses on the family and he really focuses on the person. It's like, you gotta, you gotta really be honest with yourself. You know, you, you can lie in the world, but if you lie to yourself, that's the biggest damage. And so you talked about presidents lying and, this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, th- these kind of things happen. We, we've created a, si- a society where we can't really be operational in deep truth. We've all created that. So what we have to do is we have to start dismantling those lies in ourselves, which keep us separate, which keep us in the dark, which keep us in unacceptance, which keep us in self-hate, which keep us in ridicule and judgment, and which keep us lost. Jesus said, I just want, I want you to be found. I have been found. I want you to be found, right? Buddha says, I want you to be found. Everybody who has found the, the light and is living in the light just says, oh, it's right here. Just here, take my hand. Bhag- Bhagwan has done the same thing. And of course, there's, there's a lot of people around him, just like there's a lot of people around anybody who has any kind of light. And so it's easy to get confused because sometimes there's not, it's a it's a different agenda or it's a different teaching just like the buddha he had different forms of of buddhism that that went out from his life some of it was provisional some of it was th- the main teaching so everybody kind of gets stuck in their own place with it but if you focus on the the light itself you you will find the way because the light is actually it's indiscriminate it just is just light so with Bhagwan, I, I just feel like I always can just get to the light. I can get past the dogma. I can get past the doubt. And I actually can get a miracle if I really, really knock on his door enough. I can say, look, I really need help. Come on. 
So your social intervention area is pretty much humanity, anybody that needs help. Sometimes it's not so I'm going to work. I think it's self-preservation. I think really at some level, I used to do the, the big scope and now I'm really looking at the small scope. What can I do right here, right now in myself to make a big, a big opening around me? So it's probably more selfish now than it's ever been, but it has a bigger impact than it's ever had. Padre, is there a spiritual leader that we're not aware of that, that then really inspires you to be involved on that level, to, to look at things and pray on them and whatever you do to be involved? One that right now that I, I opens my heart whenever I hear this person speak is Bill Johnson. He's a reverend out of Bethel in Redding, California. He really, he's a fifth generation preacher, but yet there's this mysticism that he brings. And he breaks the scripture down for me in such a practical application. And he's all about Jesus. He just sticks to that form. He doesn't buy from that. But when he speaks, the Holy Spirit just enriches that word that he has. And it just expands my heart. It's like, I want to be like him. I want to talk like him. I want to exemplify the Christ love that he has from humanity, regardless of who they are. I'm going to go back to Bobby's one thing that he mentioned in his, when he was talking about the AIDS epidemic and he was in the hospitals and he was serving, saying goodbye to people, things like that. It would have reminded me of uh, the COVID-19, those on the front line who they were dying daily. And it's like, Wow, what a similar experience. And those beautiful workers, doctors, nurses, caregivers were on the front line for that. And they too experienced what Bobby experienced. It's just you were just in the present moment. So for me, any spiritual teacher that can bring us into this present moment is really the, the light of Christ that really brings forth what actually we're being called into. Letting go of ourselves, our, our theory in a sense, and allowing that heart just to open up and enter in. Another one who has passed, but yet I love his writings is Henry Nowen. You know, that, that guy, that priest, he, he had an extraordinary gift of the emotional component that I'm still working on myself, of just realizing if we're not in present moment, then we're in reaction. And it's like, okay, so I love his writing. I'm still, I got probably 20 of his books and each one kind of lights my heart every morning when I use a meditation just to bring me into that presence, just to be present with God, but also with humanity. Now, is there any, a lot of people don't realize how much you tithe, Padre, how much you give to other people. In fact, I, I don't think people even know, remember that you went to the Philippines before. Oh, yeah. Are there any social areas that you feel drawn to right now where your prayer is going really strongly or you're reaching out? and, and you know, by one of the areas that I think I've, I have a desire to grow is actually for in our Celebrating Life community is the empower those to start small groups. We can call it a prayer group, but I just say a share group. To bring humanity into your home, into your, your uh, circle, because it's too easy to be on Zoom. It's too easy to watch anything on TV and be disconnected. But when it's one-on-one -on -one with another person or a group of five or 10, we got to be legal here, <laughs> that we can actually draw from their experience. I remember, and I think you remember, one of our family members was John Kabari. 
and she had AIDS and she was part of my small group. Actually, it's when Ron passed away that she actually invited myself, invited herself to my home for my prayer group. And I really didn't invite her, but a friend of mine did. And it's like, I could have went, why did you do that? Because <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's my stuff. <laughs> but what, what showed up was Dawn showed up. And then at the end of the evening, well, she was supposed to go back home, but she goes, oh, I'm too tired now. Can I stay at your house? And it's like, what? <laughs> so the idea of, and, and when you, Dana, when you talked about drinking this person's water, Dawn was there and she was drinking out of hers and I ran out of water. So she's just handing me hers. And it's like <gasps> that thought, that first thought. And of course I took it, I drank it. But it's break down these barriers that we had in the past, but also to bring it into present moments so it can be healed and dealt with. So to me, being in small groups really offers that opportunity. I call it breaking bread, breaking our concepts, but also the heart in order to be healed and restored for that new wine to show up. Yes, beautiful, Padre. Gorgeous. Now there's a one little sort of Ron's healing path of prayer that I've destroyed through getting all my readings from my guys and everything. It's it's the most beautiful way to receive information, both through Ron's writings and them speaking, but they were asking me just to read this as kind of a conclusion. How are we tying all the social event, our personal need, our inner child and intellect, all this stuff, how does this get tied up? How do we actually, again, bring it back to God? Well, this is familiar to you, I'm sure. Come to me with your misery, with your troubles and your needs, with all your longing to be loved. Ooh. Stand at the door of your heart and knock. Open to me, for I thirst for you. And that's the thing that I realized later in my peace work. I did one last march, and while I was there, they just said, pray. And I did it through visualization of color, as I was describing last week. Just praying out of a, of a fear is only going to create fear. But I just saw the love of God, and it was this beautiful purple. And, and I kept rolling across, especially forward in the crowd. I heard not to flow it backward. And I realized when we finally finished the march at a, a park, the people up in front of me, maybe 50 yards away, were a whole group of native elders who were beating drums and, and praying the whole time. And most of the people behind me were the ones that wanted to throw rocks. When we got to the center there and I realized which side of the fence I'd swung to, that I wanted to make a difference by prayer in the world, by not not stepping away from these things that I have had passion with before, but to use the true power and bring that pain I have about it, which is my pain, and bring it to God and ask God to help, help me help others. Now, literally, what we all go through is our own karma, and groups go through karma, and whole societies go through karma. And karma means learning something you didn't understand, a choice that you've been making that you haven't understood, so you keep repeating that pattern over again. Karma can be good, too where you get caught up in wanting to have the same thing over and over again because it's really nice. I think that's what you were alluding to, Padre, when you said you were nervous when Don came because you liked having the same thing over and over nice and this disrupted it, but yet opened a door to the next level, which I said before, we got to be comfortable for the next level of whether it's happening for us. And it's always by bringing whatever's uncomfortable in us or in the world and rather than ignoring it, bringing it to God's door, bringing it to Holy Spirit, or bring Holy Spirit in to you and let it open the door of your heart. So to conclude here, before we get into the final prayers, 
I'm going to share with you again something to open your heart because I know the rest of it was a little too hard. So I'm going to give you some candy now. Um, <laughs> oh, Holy Spirit, oh, divine light, Raphael and all archangels, be present with us now, each and every heart, each and every room. For those not here, for those struggling, for those lost, for those sick, for those alone, for those dying, please be here for this world. Help us be better people in your name. Let us do your work. Shine through and help create the balance that's needed healing is needed. I call your name in my heart and all the power I have now to reach all those places in myself that are I'm still ashamed, I'm still confused, and where I get overwhelmed, such that I can't even pay attention to my neighbor and my community and what it needs. Amen. Amen. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. This is a promise from the scriptures. Stillness is not apathy. It is not indifference. It is surrender. Surrender to a power that is mighty. It is a knowing in our soul that life will go on because it is meant to go on. But activity is not a way sometimes to encourage life. Stillness is. Prayer is. Surrender is. So my Lord, my God, my friend, my Redeemer, I ask now in a very personal way, please fix and heal and restore all those who are in need. The list of prayers I have before me, I pray that you heal, restore, and redeem all of these, and also to extend your hand of mercy and grace into all the hearts and lives of everyone who will be encountering you through this Zoom, everyone on this Zoom now, everyone who will listen to this Zoom later. These are your children. They are seeking you. They are hungry for you. They need help. And my request is that you provide the perfect, most beneficial medicine to heal and restore. In the innocence which we have just seen in these children, my heart is wide open to you and I ask as your child, do your work, O Lord, my God. Amen. The scripture that comes to my mind is, it's to stand still and know I am your God. And just as Bobby and Dana both suggested, silence, stillness, solitude is the perfect place where we encounter God, ourselves, our true self, and actually the heart, that heartbeat that's beating for each one of you and I. I just celebrate God's presence 
in your homes, in your hearts right now. Father, release your ministering angels to, for destiny, for purpose, the healing of all diseases. You know, I have my prayer list here also. And all those on Celebrating Life who people write in on our website daily, our community, as you can see, two of our community members up in back of me. We all pray daily for these daily needs. So we encompass your heart, your desires, your desire to heal, to be restored. Come Holy Spirit. Let the divine breath, the Ruha of God, begin to infiltrate not only your home, your relationships, your circumstances, but yourself. Don't forget we are a dwelling place of, this, of the Holy of Holies. And let this holy encounter, just as this coronavirus affects people, your presence, God's presence in your life can be an amazing gift to the world to heal, to restore. So I anoint each of you. I anoint each of you with that divine grace, God's love for yourself and for humanity to multiply and to grow prospering you, prospering them, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out the evil one. So in the name of Jesus, I cast out this spirit of the coronavirus. I break its hold over humanity, over this world, through the powerful name of Yeshua. I thank you. Let's claim our birthrights of God's love for us and for our love for humanity. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Let this consuming fire through the intercession of our Blessed Mother and all the saints, the sages, Padre Pio, Padre Ron Ross, St. Therese, Solanus Casey, all these cloud of witnesses are there for your help, my help. So we'll call upon your name, O Lord, and let the legions of saints, sages, and light beings be affected in our homes, in our speech, in our awareness, in our sight, holy sight, that we can see what God sees. May eternal rest grant unto those, who, O Lord, whose face will, you, will shine upon them as they meet the creator of the universe. So we pray for the next person on this call who will be transitioning. We pray for your family members, your friends, those in the hospital who are suffering from this virus. We just say grace upon grace upon grace. Let the healing balm of the Holy Spirit invade your space now. May the glory of God be reflected in our actions, but also in our words, but also in our stillness. As we let rise within us God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love for humanity. For this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I can feel that presence here in this room. And if I reach out into your spaces, I can feel it now. May as we all leave, like leaving a church or leaving a retreat or leaving West Heaven, I always ask everybody to tap the diamond and to hold space for the con continuity of that healing. And now if you realize that there's a healing present here, it's going to keep happening. If you close your minds and then close your eyes, I'm sorry, and your mind. And imagine a symbol that represents this possibility, this healing that's been evoked. The Holy Spirit is present for. 
Put that in your heart. Tap on it each and every day, at least once a day, if not every hour. See if you can start being the change that's needed. We need you dearly. We need everyone dearly to become their true selves, to find this deep connection and start to radiate that as we begin to go out, keeping our eyes fixed on God. Thank you again for joining us today. We bless you and wish you well. Namaste. Namaste, everyone.